is taken from the gospel. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. He stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths laying, lying uh, yet uh, went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and he went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen cloths lie and a napkin that was about his head, not lying uh, with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Uh, then went in that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. No gospel outdo, outdoes uh, John's gospel for literary splendor and visual sumptuousness that leads, uh, indeed, it lures us into mystical levels of interpretation. Can you all hear me back there? Okay. I have pointed out many times before the connection of imagery between the Ark of the Covenant uh, and, and do you know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Indiana Jones, Ark of the Covenant. Actually, this, this came before Indiana Jones, the one I'm talking about. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, the empty tomb, and the altar uh, of God uh, in, in, the, uh, in the parish. Remember that atop the Ark of the Covenant were two angels, one on each end, directing one's gaze to the lid of the Ark. Now that lid was known as the mercy seat. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a Jewish priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat, thus atoning for Israel's sin. That's, that's the deal on the Ark of the Covenant. In the empty tomb, Mary saw two angels, one seated where Christ's head had been, and the other angel seated where Christ's feet had been. Now Jews would think, that reminds me of something, and eventually they would understand that it reminded them of the mercy seat and of the Ark of the Covenant with two angels, one on either side, and the place where the blood of the sacrifice uh, is uh, sprinkled. Mary had come upon another mercy seat. And even more, more than that, because the mercy seat of the empty tomb where the blood of Jesus had been sprinkled, assumed, subsumed, into its reality, the mercy seat of the Old Testament. Thus, the mercy seat of the empty tomb reaches back and bestows final meaning upon the mercy seat of the Old Testament. But there's more than that. Uh, the mercy seat of the empty tomb not only reaches back to bestow meaning on the Old Testament, but it leaps forward to bestow meaning upon our future, and in particular, the sacramental life of the church. The Bible says that God maketh his angels uh, spirits and, ministers of, and uh, flame, uh, ministers of flame of fire, and thus the candles upon the altar remind us of the angels upon the mercy seat, as well as the angels at the tomb of our risen Lord. Uh, 
I mean, if you were to walk up there and see the fair linen right now, you would see that it has five crosses woven into it right in the center, each cross representing the wound of our Lord at Calvary. So in front of you is another mercy seat, the altar of God that gathers up, subsumes, sublates uh, both the mercy seat of the Old Testament uh, and the mercy seat of the empty tomb. That's what this altar does. Uh, bringing them into a perfect unity. Now that perfection is made visible upon the altar at every Mass, and you'll see it today, uh, that the children of God participate in, as we participate in that perfection, which is a perfection available to all of us, and it is the perfection of the incarnate Word. Now, how, how much splendor is there? How much beauty is there? That interpretation is really true. And such interpretation depends upon grasping the sacred mysteries in biblical imagery and allegory. But, this is a very big but, but the meaning and the truthfulness, uh, uh, truthful as it is, is true because it emerges from what the church fathers called the letter or what we would call a historical event. If Jesus was not really and truly raised bodily from the dead, well, all the imagery and allegory in the world is worthless. So today, it's my intention to open up to you for just a few minutes and elaborate the letter so that we can look at what happened to Jesus on the third day after he died. The point is that what we call the resurrection uh, is something that happened to Jesus. That's not something that happened to the church. Now I run the risk of sounding like I'm stating the obvious, uh, but not really. There are all kinds of silly speculation about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is not a poetic way of saying that the disciples were not defeated by his death. Uh, it is, it is not the case that shortly after his mangled dead body was placed in the tomb that his disciples remembered his teaching about God attending to dying birds and flowering lilies and suddenly they developed a positive mental attitude toward things. That's not what the resurrection is. That is not what happened. They were transformed. Yes, they were transformed. But their transformation was a response to the very real resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, before we look deeper into this for a few minutes this morning, I want to tell you about something that happened uh, I experienced a few years back. I was visiting Father Dan, who is an artist, uh, to see a painting that he had been working on. Can you all hear me? And... Uh, I know something about the subject and symbolism, art, literature, uh, to have grasped the narrative uh, uh, that was beginning to unfold on this canvas. There was a man, a red bow tie, standing uh, on the driver's side of a yellow Cadillac, holding a martini, a, Gra a Gatsby figure. Uh, and that's, that's what I thought I saw. But then Father Dan uh, said something about the door uh, of, of the caddy 
and, and how happy he was with the door. And I turned back, and it was an excellent door. It is an excellent door. He did a beautiful job on it. Uh, I turned back to see it, and I saw that the man was not holding a martini at all in his hand. In fact, he was holding a black Polaroid camera. What I thought I saw so vividly uh, was not in the painting at all. My own private illusion had quickly flashed upon the canvas, uh, completing a narrative that I brought to that painting. Are you with me? Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, now, what's my point? My point is that skeptics have frequently explained Mary Magdalene's experience of our risen Christ uh, as her private illusion, and they have frequently asserted uh, the same of the other disciples. Their so-called experience of the risen Christ is nothing more than a private illusion conjured up by grief and a competing, uh, incomplete narrative that they brought with them. And what I'm saying is that is not true. They did not bring a resurrection narrative with them at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Probably something could, but I can't think of it right now. So let's look at this text. Jesus suffered a savage scourging and crucifixion. He died about 3 p.m. on Friday. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped his body in clean linen cloths and they wrapped his face in a sudarium, which our text calls a napkin. A sudarium is a piece of cloth that's put under the chin of the corpse and then tied in a knot on its head for a very practical reason, to keep his mouth shut. That's all that there is to it. They tie it to keep the mouth shut of the corpse. That's a sedarium. Uh, they put the body in Joseph's new tomb in the garden close to Gethsemane. And while that was happening, Pilate, at the Pharisees' request, dispatched a, a guard of Roman soldiers to establish a chain of custody for the body of Jesus. This is exactly what happened. It, in fact, that, that troop, that, that contention of guard, is referred to as the custodia. The Roman guard that officially sealed the tomb, thus establishing the timeline of Caesar's custody over the lifeless body of Christ. That's what happened. And all of that was accomplished by sundown on Friday. Now listen to this text. Then, the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And notice she didn't go in. She runneth immediately, runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. This is absolutely what she believed to be the case. Early on the third day, before sunrise, Mary Magdalene and the women, uh, some other women, went to the tomb to complete a proper Jewish burial. Uh, when they arrived, the stone was rolled away, the Romans were gone, and Mary, assuming that the Romans had uh, taken the body, ran to Peter and the other disciples, who were likely staying in the same rented room in which Jesus on Thursday night had instituted the Eucharist. Peter and John lit out as soon as she told them uh, this, uh, for the tomb. 
John got there first because John was younger. Uh, it, it took Peter a little longer, but then he waited for Peter. He didn't rush in. He waited for Peter, and Peter went in first. Astonishing, the, gla- the, the grave clothes were there on the stone slab where Peter was laid. I mean, where, where Jesus was laid. But listen to this. But the sudarian, the head covering, was there as well, but it was rolled up. Isn't that interesting? It was not scattered like everything else. It was rolled up and set aside. Then when also in the other disciple, John, he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Get that text. Pay attention to the text. John saw what Peter saw, namely the the, the grave clothes lying there uh, and the neatly rolled up head covering. uh, And the text says he saw and he believed. What he believed? What did he believe? Let me tell you what he didn't believe. He didn't believe in the resurrection because the text says they didn't have, they didn't know the scripture that there must be a resurrection. So what did he believe? He believed Mary. It's obvious. He believed what Mary had reported, which is he's not here, they've taken his body. And when he saw this, he, he believed. Uh, at this point, as it, that specific scripture says, the apostles had no narrative of the resurrection. Their narrative is very simple, that Jesus is dead and someone has moved his body, just like Mary said. Peter and John then turn around and go back home. Mary, now Mary had not slept much, if she had slept at all, and her last meal, her last real meal, was probably the one four days ago, four days previous, in the upper room when Jesus instituted uh, the blessed uh, sacrament. And she was up close and saw what they had done uh, to Jesus. And her grief is agonizing. Her affect is flat. Uh, Mary musters up the courage then to bend down and look into the tomb herself and she saw two angels sitting there. Now, under normal circumstances, if a human being sees an angel, uh, it's pretty traumatizing. Uh, First chapter of the book of Revelation, John, the author, sees an angel and he just passes right out. Had Mary not been worn, this is what I want you to see. Has she not been worn out from grief and fatigue uh, and and was registering with what was going on, uh, she she would have uh, frozen in fear and trembling at the sight of these heavenly creatures. Be attentive to the text. This is a very picture of what we call today clinical grief. And even when the angels speak to her, it's like, it, it's flat, uh, with no deep feeling at all. Where is Jesus' body? That's her question. Mary, that's what's driving her, that single question. Mary then turns around, or back on the angels, and begins to walk out of the tomb, and Jesus is standing right there. But she doesn't recognize him. I mean, last time she saw Jesus, imagine what he looked like. Here he is standing there.
and she begs him for she begs him for his body. She mistakes him for the gardener, which by the way, as an aside, you don't have to pay for this part. It's free. There's a gardener in the book of Genesis, isn't there? In the first garden, who made this mess or helped make it. And here's the second Adam in a garden having undone the tragedy of the first. The narrative that Mary is bringing to this event is not a resurrected narrative. She doesn't have one. Her narrative is of death and loss, and she's unable to let go until Jesus speaks her name. And then, nobody could say her name like that. And I don't mean this in just kind of a fluffy, romantic way. You know that. You know your loved one. When he or she speaks your name, she does it in a way that nobody else can do it. Sometimes you even hear it when they're not saying it. Right? Yeah. She hears that name that nobody said, and she immediately knows who, she is, who he is. I don't know, maybe it was a second or two later. But, but then she falls down at his knees, uh, uh, at his feet, and says, Master. She has no categories to understand what's happening. She has no prepackaged resurrection narrative available to her. She just knows that this man here is Jesus, the one who died on the cross, and he's not dead anymore. The two things I want you to understand, though Jesus was standing right in front of her at that point, she didn't understand what was going on, and she probably thought that this was like Lazarus coming forth. That's probably what she thought. This is okay. This is like Lazarus rising from the dead. It took some time for the church to understand what was going on. Secondly, she knew one thing, unbelievable as it may be, the robust man standing in front of her, full of life, was Jesus, her Lord. And then he sent her back to Peter. This is the second time. She turns around and she runs back to uh, uh, the upper room uh, to Peter and the other disciples saying, he's risen, he's risen from the dead, I've seen him. And then some of the uh, uh, disciples bolt out of the house, run back to the tomb, and the Bible says, but they didn't see Jesus. And they were disturbed and thought the women were making it up. It was hardly noon. Uh, and the disciples were breaking up and leaving Jerusalem because it had become a dangerous place for them. Uh, and among those getting out of Jerusalem were two of Jesus' disciples returning to their home in Emmaus. You all know this story, right? story of the Emmaus disciples. You know what happened there. And Okay, so they were, they were utterly crushed by what had befallen Jesus. And as they walked to their village, Jesus began walking with them. Uh, but they didn't recognize him, just like Mary. Did not recognize him. Uh, and, and, uh, these men, and these men already have a narrative. Uh, and, and they'll tell you what it is. This is their narrative. Because they tell Jesus. It was resurrected, this. Uh, we had hoped that Jesus would restore the nation of Israel. But he did not. Uh, the resurrection had nothing to do with this story. And with their expectations. Uh, but, as you know, by the end of the story, 
when they, they, they talk him in, into staying for uh, uh, dinner that night, he breaks the bread and suddenly their eyes are open and they see it's the Lord and then he disappears. And they say, that is Jesus. And they, yeah. and they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem as fast as they can and they go, they go where they, to the place where they know they'll find Peter and the other disciples. And when they arrived to the upper room, they cried out, the Lord is risen. And then by that time, other disciples were returning to the upper room because Jesus had, re Jesus had revealed himself to some of them. Now, we don't have those narratives, do we? We don't have those narratives, but he didn't just reveal himself to these, but to a lot of others too. But these are the ones that, that we have uh, by, by the providence of the Holy Ghost in Scripture. Uh, and then suddenly, Jesus himself came and stood in the midst of them, and, and he cried out, Peace be unto you. And they were silenced and filled with wonderment and no little bafflement as well. That's day one with Jesus' morning appearance to Mary, and it ended with the church of Jerusalem gathering around Peter and the apostles. And this is really what happened to Jesus and his disciples. And that is why all of that allegory and symbolism is true as well. Without that, without the historical reality of our Lord's resurrection, then all the so-called spiritual, mystical, allegorical meaning in the world is built on nothing but wishful thinking. Everything I've said here actually happened, uh, and I've only skimmed the surface. The meaning for us uh, and all creation will literally take the rest of eternity to unfold. But one last point I want to make, which I, I make every year. I want to go back to Caesar for just a second. We're almost done. Not even a whole paragraph here, okay? Caesar will never stop trying to take custody of the body of Christ. That wasn't his one and only try. He always intends to take custody of the body of Christ. But regardless of how high and mighty, how menacing, how ominous they are, Caesars, including those that go by the name of we the people, are puny. And they always die. And our citizenship is with Jesus in heaven. You belong to Jesus. And he's the only one who has custody of you, your body, and your soul for good. Christ is risen from the dead, and so are you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.